I think sometimes it's easy for us to sing songs without catching the message that we sing. I I love that song. It's relatively new to us, uh, talking about God leading us back to life. And at a new year, at the, 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 the dawning of a new year, I think there are a lot of ways in which we need to, as a church, ask God to lead us back to Him. Now, the, the uh, ways that God needs to lead us back are as manifold and as various as the people and personalities that make up this room. But I'll tell you an interesting conversation, series of conversations that I've had, even over the last few weeks. People who um, love Jesus, but for whatever reason, don't feel like He's very near. Have you ever been in that funk? Yes, you love, you love the Lord. But you don't necessarily feel like he's all that close. And I think this morning, as we have the opportunity to look at our passage um, about calls to growth, I think if we dedicate ourselves to some things that are really very basic, but not necessarily easy, we'll find a nearness to God that I think oftentimes we lack. So over last week and this week, we've had a kind of a two-week mini-series in which we've talked about calls to growth. And the strange thing is growing Christians are um, intimate Christians. Growing Christians feel close to God. Christians who are not interested in growing typically feel like God is distant. And so last week, we looked at an area where every believer needs to grow. We looked at the story of Zacchaeus. And in that story, we saw Jesus' commitment to evangelize. And I hope that your heart was challenged, like mine, to share with more intentionality over the coming year. I've been greatly encouraged. There are several of you that have emailed and said, you know what? I don't invite people to church. And if the statistics say people will come, I'm going to do it. And so there were at least 16 people invited to church this week. Are they here today? I don't know. And you know what? That's even besides the point. Because if God's people are being obedient to do what they need to do, that's the win. Other people showing up, that's the icing on the cake. And so very encouraging to hear ways that people are saying, yes, I need to grow in this way. I need to do something. Grateful for practical suggestions. Well, this morning we're going to look at what is many times an often overlooked passage of Scripture to guide our study of additional ways in which our church can grow. Three specific areas in which we can focus our growth for 2014. Now, it's kind of interesting that um, while this is a separate series, where we will be passage-wise begins where our Christmas series ended in Luke chapter 2. Right after the infancy narrative of Christ. This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. And I want to pray that God will open our ears and connect them to our hearts so that we put into practice His Word. God, we pray that You will speak through Your Word. And Lord, let that sound, let that voice go out. Let it be heeded 
and obeyed. Because, Lord, we know that it is needed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's important to note that the passage we are looking at this morning is the only, the only historically accurate account of Jesus' childhood. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus. There's a lot of fanfare and announcement and crazy things that happen when Jesus is born. There are angels showing up all over the place to Zechariah, to, to Mary, uh, at, to, to shepherds. There are just strange things happening that you would think, wow, this baby is going to be a celebrity. The paparazzi are going to follow him everywhere. He's hardly going to be able to find any free time. And the truth is, after Jesus is born, we know startlingly little about Jesus' childhood. So you know, you know what you do if you don't know something. You make something up. From the time Jesus is two till the time he is 12, for a decade, we know nothing about Jesus. And so that's kind of boring. God did a bad editing job. We want to know, you know, inquiring minds want to know what happened in those 10 years. So you are not without some options. As a matter of fact, to spice things up, non-Christian writers wrote these pseudo-gospels and they turned Jesus into an action hero. Did you know that? By the way, the tattoo says, Father, not Mom. So that's a theological joke. Some of you will figure that out here later. There's a story about Jesus Christ, the dragon tamer. You've heard the story about how uh, as Jesus was growing up as a child, Herod got really annoyed when wise men came and said, we're here to see the king of the Jews. Herod said, here I am. They said, you're not the one we're looking for. And so you know what Herod did? He, he issued an edict to kill all the children two years and under that were in Bethlehem. God warned them in a dream, and so Joseph got, gathered his family and they fled to Egypt. What you didn't know was that as they were journeying to Egypt, the family was tired and they found a cave to rest in for the night. And as they went into the cave, there was a um, herd of dragons. What do you call a bunch of dragons? Is it a gaggle or a herd or a flock? Whatever it is, there's a, there's a family of dragons in this, um, in this cave, and they come out whenever Jesus' family comes walking up. And of course, everyone is really scared. And little two-year-old Jesus goes and he stands among the dragons, and the dragons bow down to him and then go about their business. Why didn't that make the cut? You know, 14-year-old boys all over the world would think Jesus is really cool if they would have kept that story. Well, that's not the most fantastic of the stories. Jesus is a little boy, is uh, playing in the mud like little boys do. And fashioning, instead of making little castles, he's making little birds, little clay pigeons. And uh, it's not enough to just make a little muddy bird. Uh, Jesus uses some of his, his miracle power and throws this muddy clay pigeon in the air, and it turns into a real bird and flies off. Jesus the magician. Well, while he's doing this, another little boy comes up and sees what Jesus is doing in this, this muddy pool and takes a stick and starts whacking the water. And Jesus, in a very kind of proverbial fashion, says, What hath the water done to you, evil boy? 
and curses the boy right there and he dies. These, you can find these in non-Christian gospels. Um, Jesus is in a marketplace and a boy bumps into him and Jesus curses him and he dies. That's from the infancy gospel of Thomas. There's a boy that gets, uh, one of his friends gets bitten by a snake. And Jesus goes and says, show me the snake. And when he sees the snake, he says, snake, suck the poison out of that boy's leg. And so the snake goes and sucks the poison out of the boy's leg. And then Jesus curses the snake and the snake explodes. It's like Steve Irwin. Controlling the animals. Taking care of this. And then somebody makes a uh, snide comment to Jesus opposing him, not liking him. And so he casts blindness on the entire crowd. So Joseph has had it at this point. These all don't come from the same false gospels. It's a compilation of what's out there. But Joseph has had it at this time. So what do you do to a little boy that dragons bow down to and can explode snakes and cast blindness? It says Joseph took him by the ear and wrung it till it was sore. That sound like the Jesus that you know? You see, I kind of thought he came to give life, not to take it. And so, wow, it's kind of colorful to hear what happened over this decade. Kind of cool to hear about, you know, action hero Jesus. There's only one small problem. You know what it is? It's not biblical. There's a reason these so-called gospels didn't make the cut. And so when there's no information there, people fabricate stories to make it sound more interesting. But today's passage, we get biblical truth about Jesus' childhood. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see two main points, just two main points, but those two main points are repeated twice. They're repeated at the beginning, or they, they, they occur initially at the beginning, and then they're repeated again uh, just a, a few verses later, uh, as we'll see. And I think that these are really good and important things for us to note. Let's begin in verse uh, 39, uh, through, uh, yeah, 39 through 40. It starts off like this. Immediately ending where we ended with um, Simeon and uh, Anna just a few weeks ago. Verse 39. When they, meaning Jesus' parents, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The very first thing that we see here in these two kind of introductory verses is that Jesus' parents are portrayed as faithful in their religious observance. They are portrayed as faithful. They were faithful to follow God's law fully, as clearly and as explicitly as they could. As a matter of fact, if you remember back to a few sermons ago, in Luke chapter 2, just a few verses back in verse, verses 22 through 24, we see this repeated phrase, verse 22. And when the days for their purification according to the law of, Mo- according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law. 
Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. In Jesus' early childhood, Mary and Joseph sought to be as faithfully obedient as possible. And as a way to summarize all of Jesus' early infancy, verse 39 says, when they had done everything, when they had performed everything according to the law, they went back to Galilee, they went back to Nazareth. Between Bethlehem and Egypt, Christ was basically a homeless refugee for the first couple years of his life. We don't think of it like that, but it's true. And then when verse 40 ends, there there is a break. And we fast forward 10 years and look at what we see in verse 41. It's the exact same picture of Mary, Mary and Joseph that we saw from a decade earlier. Verse 41, now... His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus became 12, they together went up there according to the custom of the feast. We see that Jesus' parents were not just faithful to the law according to all of the birthing and parenting rituals in early childhood. But they were also faithful in pilgrimage. They were faithful to the law related to everything about the birth of a child. But they were also habitually faithful in pilgrimage. You see, one of the things that the law said is that you, as a pious Jewish man, were expected to to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now... I don't know how many of you go on three vacations a year, but that's not entirely realistic if you live on modest means. And so we find out here very quickly that his parents went to Jerusalem every year for Passover. They picked one. And so you know what? Passover is going to be the feast that we go uh, to Jerusalem. And it's interesting because it says that uh, Mary and Joseph went as was their custom. Now, we don't know, did, was Jesus in Passover Preschool, you know, did they put them in childcare while they want to attend the Passover festivities? We don't know. But we do know that when Jesus turns 12, he gets to come along to big church. He gets to be a part of everything. And so it says uh, it was their custom to go. This was their regular habit. Now, Passover, as you know, is probably most analogous to what we celebrate as Easter. It's a holiday that occurs in the March-April time frame, and it celebrated the freedom that the Jews had that was brought about through the Exodus. From Nazareth, it was about a three-day walk. Not an easy journey. Three days there, perhaps a week in the city, three days back. Jesus' invitation at 12 years old, something that would not be uh, lost upon Jewish people, because for Jewish people, young men at the age of 12 go through something called the Bar Mitzvah. The Bar Mitzvah is a very important milestone for a Jewish young man. At that point, at 12, they are deemed to be old enough to have the maturity to become a member of the covenant community. Before that, they are kind of part of the crowd 
but they're not covenant members. And at 12, they are expected to take on adult responsibilities for faithfulness to the law. Before that, they're a child, and they're expected to um, mess up, to walk too far on the Sabbath, to not pay attention to the law. But at 12, it's a new thing. There's a, there's a level of responsibility and maturity that is expected. They are expected to take personal responsibility for being faithful to the law. And I think that sometimes there are caricatures about Bible persons, that Mary was sinless. The Bible didn't say that. That Joseph was just this great, perfect father. Mary and Joseph were good parents. We can see here that they were very pious and they were very uh, principled about following the law and being involved in public worship, but they weren't perfect. And in the same way, Jesus was not some supernaturally endowed punk from the stories that we've looked at, doing miraculous things for his own pleasure, casting out curses and death like they're candy. Jesus experienced a normal and true humanity. The only difference for Jesus was that he never sinned. He went through everything we went through. He just resisted temptation. And that's our second point, that Jesus experienced normal human growth. Jesus experienced normal human growth. You saw that in verse 40. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. There is no need for the apocryphal fantasies that we talked about earlier. Jesus is enough of an action hero from what we know. We don't need some made-up stories to make who he is more incredible. When we talk about the incarnation, some people struggle with this passage because we know that Jesus is God. We struggle sometimes with understanding his man, the manhood part. And so when it says Jesus grew, the physical part we don't have a problem with. But Jesus grew in wisdom? Come on! He's God. He created the world. He is, you know, um, he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He knows it all. Well, here's the thing that's really interesting. Jesus is, at the same time, 100% God. Do you know what else? He is 100% man. The Bible doesn't subtract from his divinity to add humanity. But the Bible doesn't subtract from his humanity to add divinity. He was 100% of both. The only difference for Jesus, as we've said, is that he never sinned. It's not like Jesus cheated at being a man by relying on his divine powers when he needed it. Oh, you know, I'm going to be a weak, normal human being, except I have all the power in the world to do whatever I need to. No. The Bible says that Jesus voluntarily gave up some of his powers in his incarnation. You know, Jesus said he doesn't know when he's coming back. He said that to his disciples. He chose to remove some of his powers during his incarnation. And we see several things here that I think are good for us to remember. And the first is that Jesus grew physically strong. Verse 40 says he grew and became strong physically, talking about his body. It says that he grew in wisdom. 
But what is wisdom? That's a good word. Wisdom. Wisdom is not being like the best fortune cookie writer in the world. You know, um, having those little one-liners that make you go, oh yeah, that's wise. Wisdom is a combination of intellectual knowledge and moral application. Okay? If you're a bad character, you're exempt from being a wise person. You get that? Wisdom has moral implications. And, And wisdom is not just kind of being smart. Wisdom is knowing how to take knowledge and apply it to life. So wisdom is a kind of a strange combination of knowledge, intellectualism, but also moral purity. And it says Jesus grew in wisdom. He knew the right thing to do, and he knew how to do it. That's an amazing thing to think about. We're talking about the Lord here. We're talking about God. And growing in knowledge and wisdom doesn't detract from his divinity when we understand that he, of himself, gave up his right, gave up the full use of his divine powers. So normal growth and knowledge is not ruled out. What an amazing thing to think about the humility of Christ in uh, needing to grow. But the story continues for Jesus as well. Remember, I said between verse 40 and verse 41, about a decade spans. And just as we saw this cycle with Mary and Joseph, that they were faithful at at birth and they were faithful in early childhood, we see the same with Jesus. If Jesus grew in verse 40, in verses 42 through 52, we continue to see his growth. Listen to what the Word of God says. And when Jesus became 12, his family went up there together according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but, but, but supposed him to be in the caravan and want a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. At 12 years old, Jesus begins to develop a keen interest in his father's priorities. The previous 10 years have been silent years. We don't know a whole lot about it. But we know that at this particular 12-year-old Passover, Jesus goes along and he gets left behind. I sit there and wonder, did, did Jews have child protection services? Somebody needs to call the police. What's going on here? This is not neglect. Remember, Jesus was at a very pivotal point in his life. Twelve years old. Is he a boy? Is he a man? Well, according to Jews, he was kind of right in between. And so Jesus could have 
as a boy, been traveling with the women and small children. But because he was 12, he also could have been traveling with the men and older boys. And you know how it is. It's happened to you. You just assume that if your kid's not with you, he's with your spouse. So yeah, Joseph's having a good time, you know, talking about whatever they talk about, you know, and thinking, hey, no problem, Jesus isn't here, he's with Mary. And Mary's, you know, having the time of her life, talking with her lady friends, playing with the kids. And as they get to their stopping point, remember, it's a three-day journey, and the families begin to gather together for supper. To settle down for the night, they go, um... Where's Jesus? And they begin to realize he's, he's gone. And so after a day's journey away from Jerusalem, they spend the night with anxiety, knowing that it's a full day back to get to Jerusalem to find him. They go back, and evidently, after the day's journey back, they spend the night, and then they spend the next day looking for him. So it's three days that Jesus is on his own. And when they find him, surprise of surprises, They find him where they left him, at the temple. And Jesus is kind of nonplussed about the whole situation. He's like, I kind of stayed where you left me. I didn't even know you'd left the city. I just knew you'd be back for me. In a way that a child can say, not precocious. I don't think there's any sense of rebuke. Well, why were you looking for me? I'm the son of God. Why didn't you expect me to be? No, there's none of that. There's none of that. And when they walk up, (laughs) Jesus is listening to the teachers and providing insightful comments into the scripture. Twelve years old. Now listen, he was the God child. But he grew normally. And if there's anything here, I think it's that we need to be very careful at underestimating what our children can do. Underestimating what our children can learn. And is is often the case with parents. (laughs) Emotions for our children are a mixed bag. Mary is astonished when she sees Jesus sitting among the teachers, giving responsible, mature insight into Scripture. But what's been happening to Mary over the last three days? Her heart has been anxious. And so here she comes to find her son with this mixture of amazement at this boy and anxiety over him not being around. Can any parents relate to that? You know, just a little bit of a little bit of happy, a little bit of sad. A little bit of joy, a little bit of grief. It's almost like when Mary comes to him, Jesus kind of expected them to know where he would be. He hadn't disobeyed. And Mary is a little annoyed because why have you treated your father and I this way? Jesus just said, you left me here. (laughs) Wouldn't you have expected me to be where you had left me? And in this episode, we see something really cool. We get a very strong hint at Jesus' growing awareness of who he is, of his identity. Did you see what he says in verse 48 when they saw him? They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And in verse 49, he said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? 
Did you catch the word play there? And again, there's no disrespect coming from Jesus' lips. Mary says, why have you treated your father and I, Joseph and I, like this? Now, Joseph, was Joseph Jesus' father? Yes. Legally. Not biologically. And Jesus kind of uses this retort to say, yes, I know, Father, and you were looking for me, but didn't you know that I was about my Father's, capital F, business? Twelve years old. Did Jesus always know he was the Son of God? Does any kid really understand what it means to be the son of a father? It takes a little while to grow into that, doesn't it? To understand what it means to bear the family name. How many parents of teenagers have been embarrassed at what their teenage son has done? It kind of takes a while to grow into those shoes. And here at 12, we see something amazing. Jesus is growing in his understanding, and he is growing and maturing spiritually. Nobody has a problem with Jesus growing physically. People struggle with Jesus growing in wisdom. Here we're saying that Jesus is maturing spiritually and understanding his identity as the Son of God. It's amazing. And it's clear that Mary and Joseph don't quite get it. The Bible says as much. And the temptation for us is to pull our hair out and go, Mary, don't you remember like 50 verses ago, an angel appeared to you and said, you're going to have a baby by non-natural means? Don't you remember that? Joseph, you had an angel appear to you too. Why don't you get it? But 50 verses ago was 10 years ago. And for Mary and Joseph, there was all this fanfare, all this excitement when the baby was born. And then they had had 10 years of silence and solitude. No angels showing up. No prophets busting out into prophecy when your kid walks in the room. And it was normal. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus is kind of passing this rite of becoming a man, his divine nature and identity breaks in on them again. Do you blame Mary and Joseph for not quite getting it? It's not like there's an um, incarnation for parenting the incarnate Son of God book for dummies. You know, there's no precedent for them to know what they're doing here. And so he, he's growing. And I think when we think about this, when we think about Jesus' growing knowledge of himself and the lack of understanding on his parents' part, it makes verses 51 and 52 amazing. Did you see what it said? They didn't understand. And Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Despite his parents, kids, listen to this. Especially on the front row. Despite his parents' weakness and ignorance, in his self-knowledge that he was God's son. Jesus was content with God's timing and knew that obedience to his parents was the order of the day. If there's any kid that didn't need to obey his parents, it was Jesus. And what does it say he did? He grew socially and understanding his relationships with others. 
Yes, he was the son of God, but he was also the son of Mary and Joseph. And in spite of this high for him, hearing, being in public worship, hearing God's word explained, enjoying that kind of fellowship, his parents say, it's time to go home. He doesn't want to. He is right where he wants to be. But he doesn't complain. He doesn't fuss. He goes immediately with them. And he submits to their authority. And the point in all of this is, is, is this, that Jesus' whole attitude about his walk with God, his call to serve him, his relationships with others are not a unique product of his divine sonship. They are a pathway for us in how we are to prioritize our lives. Are there ways that you can grow socially? Are there ways that you can grow in uh, spiritual wisdom? Are there ways that you you need to grow intellectually? And the, the point is this, and point number three, is that growth is a God-given grace. I don't know if you saw this in verse 40. It's easy to skip, skip over it. This summary statement, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. What kind of curse would it be to never grow? Some of you can't even fathom that question. You know why? Because you've grown. Pick one area of your life and let's just stunt you. For some of you, 60 years ago, you never grew intellectually beyond a six-month-old. You never grew physically beyond a two-year-old. We have, we have names for that. That's not normal. Growth is a grace. What if you never grew spiritually beyond John 3.16? Growth is a grace. And I think when we stop and look at the big picture, there are a couple summary things that we can say here. Jesus was clearly committed to growing strong in every facet of life. It says he grew physically, he grew in wisdom, uh, he grew spiritually, he grew socially. Jesus was committed to growing in every facet of life. It's not like, you know, I'll, I'll grow here, but you know what, nah, I'm not going to mess with that. When we talk about Jesus' growth in wisdom... And his growth in social graces, that was growth in discipleship. What is discipleship? Well, there's nothing wrong with memorizing Bible verses. Discipleship is a lot more than merely memorizing Bible verses. If, your Bible, if the Bible verses you memorize, the Bible studies that you go to, don't help you to grow in your walk with God and your relationship with others, then guess what? It's not worth as much. Now, far be it for me to say the Bible says it's not worth it. But you know what? You get out of it what you put into it. And if you're satisfied with mere attendance, then be satisfied with mere rewards. But if you want to know God, and you want to be helpful to other people, then like Jesus, grow in wisdom and grow in your social, your, your social relationships. And that is growth in discipleship. Jesus continually grew in being a disciple of his Father. It's interesting, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to do what? To love God 
to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus shows a pretty good example of that in these silent years, doesn't he? Loved his father, was about his father's business, but at the same time continued in subjection to his parents because that was what God had ordained for him. Growing in his love for God, growing in his love for others. Jesus' growth spiritually was centered on growth in worship. Now, what do you do when you go to the temple? Well, on Shabbat, on Saturday, on the worship day, you do what? You worship. And then it said when Mary and his father found him, what was he doing? He was sitting on one of the porches, uh, talking to the rabbis and the teachers and the leaders. Jesus was involved in public worship, and Jesus was involved in small group Bible study. You see that? We didn't invent that stuff. Jesus was involved in public worship, and as part of his public worship, he was involved in a personal, small group where they were talking about and applying the Scriptures to life. It was worship. The big question is this. Jesus' growth in all of these areas was for a specific purpose. And his specific purpose is what we talked about last week. Remember that summary statement in Luke 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. If you want to be a seeker and saver of the lost, you had better grow in your understanding. You need to know God's Word, and you need to know lost people. You'd better grow in your relationships. You had better grow in your worship. Jesus brought all these things under the umbrella of wanting to be a seeker and saver of the lost. And so all of his growth in all of these areas was for the specific purpose of his mission to save sinners by his atoning death. And the question really comes down to this. On this day, January 5th, 2014, if the Lord himself in his incarnation needed to grow in all of these ways. Dear friend, where do you need to grow? How do you need to grow in your understanding of worship? Now, for some of you, here's a really practical suggestion. Get up earlier on Sunday morning. You can grow in your worship by getting up 20 minutes early and spending five minutes in prayer about the Lord's Day. God, make me, help, help me to say hello to a person that really needs it. Help me to listen to your word. Help me to sing with enthusiasm so that people know that there's joy in my life. How do you need to grow in your discipleship? How do you need to grow in relationships with other, loving others or loving God? Are there things that you need to know about your faith that you know you've just gone, well, for 20 years I haven't known this, and I'm okay with that? Make this the year that you commit to learning something new so that you can use it in relationship to others. How do you need to grow in mission? I said there were several this week that have invited friends and coworkers to come to church. They said, you know what? If this is what mission is about, this is easy. I can do this. Jesus sets an example for us growing in every facet of life. How can we dare do less? And those are the things that need to occupy our thoughts as we go into 2014. 
tonight as we have the opportunity to gather for our church conference. Uh, we'll be excited to kind of talk about our year in review. But there are two specific ways our church is doing two new things to grow in worship and in mission. And if you'll come tonight and be a part of our conversation, I'd love to talk about that and give you some understanding it strategically how we're trying to grow like Jesus did for Jesus' glory. Pray with me, please. Lord, it is, um, <clears throat> it is um, almost overwhelming to think about all of the growth potential in, in this room. And to, to, to imagine with a God-sized imagination, if all of us just grew in one way, what that could do for the glory of your name. Lord, if everyone here, every adult here, made it their ambition to share the gospel with one person this year, what would we, what would we be celebrating at the end of 2014? If, if every Christian committed to grow in one specific area of their discipleship, their love for God, their love for you, Lord, our church would be on steroids. Lord, if we came to worship, truly to worship, and not merely to fulfill a religious obligation, what kind of spirit would be present among us? What would people sense when they worship with us? God, Put your finger through your spirit on every single one of our hearts and minds and convict us where we need to grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.